Well, as New Testament Christians, we find ourselves in redemptive history, living in the age between promise and fulfillment. We read in the Scriptures about the manifold promises of God. We understand what it is He has planned for eternity. And we know that everything that God has purposed will come to pass. And that all of Scripture will be fulfilled. And we recognize that with the coming of Jesus, much of it has already been fulfilled. Many of the Old Testament prophecies, the coming of a Redeemer, the New Covenant, the indwelling of the promised Holy Spirit, Gentile inclusion into the plan of God, many of the prophecies about God bringing blessing to the world have already been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. But we also recognize that many of those promises are yet future. Not everything God has promised has been fulfilled. We live in between promise and fulfillment because we still await God's plan to bring everything to completion. For example, we recognize that the resurrection of the dead has not taken place. We recognize that we still live in a fallen creation. The wolf does not lie down with the lamb, nor the lion eat straw like the ox. We know that the new heavens and the new earth are still future. And so we live in anticipation of those promises of God being realized. Some things have been fulfilled, but not all things. Some things have been inaugurated, but not all things have been consummated. For example, as we saw last week, Jesus brought the kingdom of God, but we still await the kingdom of God in its fullness. It's been inaugurated, but not consummated. Now, this sounds kind of strange to say that something is a reality now and yet also a future hope. And to put our minds around this thing, theologians have described this as the already not yet tension in Scripture. The already and the not yet is the idea that certain promises are presently true with the coming of Jesus, yet at the same time incomplete. There are still aspects of the promise to be fulfilled at a later time. So the already not yet teaches that concepts like salvation and the kingdom and even the last days are already a reality in the world in one sense and yet also a future hope in another sense. So there's this tension in the scripture that all of the promises for believers are already present and active but the full expression and enjoyment of those promises is yet future. This is the already and the not yet. And if I've lost you already, hang in there. I'm going to give you some examples. The Scripture teaches that you have, if you are in Jesus Christ today, you have been adopted by God. It's a present reality. And yet the Scripture also teaches at the same time that we await our adoption. 1 John 3, 1. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. And then he spends the rest of the chapter describing how we know that we're the children of God. But in Romans 8.23, he says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we have become children of God positionally. That's the already. But we have not become the children of God in its fullest expression, which is the not yet. We await the resurrection to experience experience the fullness of that reality. Let me give you another one. You are already redeemed in Christ, and yet you still await your redemption. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And yet later in the same letter, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we have been redeemed. That's your position before God that will not change. And yet the Holy Spirit is given to seal us for the full expression of that redemption, which is still future. Or this one, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So you have been saved. Completed action in the Greek, the aorist. Colossians, uh, for, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, present continuous, it is the power of God. So there is a tension in the Scripture in that at the same time, something can be a present reality and something can also be a future hope. The Scripture clearly teaches that you have been saved if you've been joined to Jesus Christ by faith but also clearly teaches that you await salvation. Jesus is coming again to bring salvation to those who believe. Now, this is not a contradiction. It just means that the work that God has begun in you is a saving work, which is so certain that it can be described as a completed action, and yet we all recognize that it is not a completed action because we still sin. We still get sick. We still die. If salvation is eternal life and we've been given eternal life, the fullness of that salvation must not be a present reality because we still experience all of the effects of the fall. The same is true in regard to the kingdom of God. It is already present with the coming of Jesus, and yet it is not yet fully present. 
Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Past action, it's a reality. But James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? A promise is something that you await. A promise is something that is still future. A promise is given because you have not received it yet. So, is it a past reality that we've been transferred into the kingdom or is it a future hope? Well, it's both. Believers are actively taking part in the kingdom of God today, although the kingdom will not reach its full expression until sometime in the future. We are already in the kingdom, but we do not yet see it actualized or completed. Now, if you don't grasp this, there's going to be a lot of confusing parts of Scripture because this is in a... This touches on a lot of different subjects. How can Jesus say on the one hand that the kingdom of God is present and then on the other hand say that He's returning to establish His kingdom? You would either have to conclude that He's talking about two totally different kingdoms or He has set one kingdom into motion and He's later returning to complete it. Now, I think a great illustration of the already and not yet is the concept of a betrothal. A betrothal is something you don't hear about much. You see it in the Scripture. We have this thing called engagement. So if a couple is they're in love and they're going to get married and there's a proposal and there's an engagement and there's a ring, but an engagement can be broken and there's nothing binding Yet, so we've heard of people who have been engaged and then broken the engagement for some reason. A betrothal is different because it is as binding as a marriage. So if you remember in the Gospels, when Joseph discovers that Mary is with child, it says that he sought to secretly divorce her. But they were only betrothed. They had not been married yet. But the betrothal is a binding contract between families and it is a certainty that cannot be broken. It's like the beginning of something that awaits completion and it is certain. So the already and the not yet is like a betrothal. The contract is in place. The reality of the marriage has been inaugurated. The benefits of that contract have been established, but it has not yet been consummated because there hasn't been a wedding. But the wedding just represents something that has already been in place, you see. So in the same way, Jesus has come and established salvation and the kingdom and its promises to you are certain and they are secure. 
and yet it will not be fully realized until he returns. And what metaphor does Jesus use for that? It's the bridegroom coming back to receive his bride. And what's the first event that happens when when the bridegroom comes to receive his bride? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, we wear his ring in a sense. You see, he has made the promises to us. They are as certain as any covenant. And yet they are not fully realized until he returns and they become the already. So it would not be incorrect to say that Jesus brought his kingdom to earth in his first coming and he is bringing his kingdom to earth in his second coming. They are both aspects of the same reality. One is inauguration. One is consummation. In fact, what Jesus is going to describe here in verses 20 and through the rest of the chapter is the already and the not yet of the kingdom. I'm telling you all of this to make sense of what we are about to look at. The kingdom is already present in the person of Jesus so that He can come to earth and preach the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And at the same time, He can talk about His second coming when He will bring God's kingdom to earth. Now, if you were here last week, we saw verses 20 and 21. This is part 2. But in those verses, the Pharisees were asking Jesus about some event or sign that the kingdom would come. And Jesus shocked them by stating that the kingdom of God was in their midst. In other words, it was present already in Him, and it's not something that would be observable as if you could see some sign. This was the already. But then He will go on to talk about the not yet. In fact, from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, it's all about the second coming and the consummation of this kingdom. Verse 22, let's read it together. Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Now, in verse 20, he was addressing the Pharisees. And now in verse 22, he shifts his attention towards the disciples. He tells them the kingdom is present, the Pharisees. And now he's telling his disciples the kingdom is future. He talks to them about the future and the time of the end when he will return. Now, the disciples are not fully clear on what the plan of God is. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you will see Jesus teaching them over and over and over and over that He has to go away and that He has to come back. And what He says here is that a time is coming when they will have a desire for something to happen and yet that desire will not be satisfied. He says in verse 22, 
The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Now, what does he mean? I think he means that between the time of their salvation, which is the already, and the time of his return, which is the not yet, there's going to be this window between promise and fulfillment that will produce a longing in the disciples for the physical reign of Jesus Christ. There will be a desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, just one day of Him reigning over a, over a redeemed earth, being present with His people, and yet that desire will not be satisfied. In other words, they're going to have to wait. And that longing that they will have, every believer should have. Everyone who has been born of the Spirit and adopted by God and joined to Jesus Christ must have that longing in their hearts. We see the brokenness of the world. We see the misery and suffering of man and beast. We see sickness, disease, and death. We see the injustice of our fallen governments. We see the persecution against Christ's church. We see the God-dishonoring lifestyles of sinful people. We see Christ's name being slandered and blasphemed. And we desire to see every wrong made right and for God to be vindicated. This ought to be the longing of every believer. If you are a true believer today, you are not at home in this world. If you are a true believer today, you are regularly grieved by your own sin and the sins of others. If you are a true believer, you desire to be free from corruption. You desire to be holy. You desire to be made complete without sin. If you are a true believer, you long for a world that is full of the glory of God. And if those are not your longings today, I would encourage you to examine yourself. Say, why aren't those my longings? Why don't I ever think about the future? Why don't I ever think about how wonderful it will be when Christ comes back? when sin will be done away with. The Scripture says we are not to love this present world. We are not to store up treasure for ourselves on earth. We are sojourners and strangers here. And that to depart and be with Christ is great gain. So the longing should be there in your heart to be with Christ, to see Him reign. But it's not a longing that will be immediately satisfied. That's the point he's making. The days are coming, you're going to have this longing, and you're not going to see it. doesn't mean no disciples will ever see it. But for most of the disciples who have ever lived in the history of the church, they will not see that day. 
Or at least they will long for that day and it will not come. Now perhaps because of this longing, disciples can become vulnerable. Perhaps because of this desire to see Christ come, we could be easily deceived. And so we're warned here against those who will try to persuade us that Jesus has already come. Again, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Now, Jesus does not specify who the they are, but He warns that there will be people who are going to make claims that Christ has already returned. That He already came back. That it was a secret return. They will say the not yet has become the already. These are deceivers. They are people who will lead the disciples astray by leading them away from Christ and leading them after themselves. Jesus speaks similarly in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Richard read it. I'll give you a few verses to remind you. Matthew 24.4 Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in My name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Drop down verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there He is, Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. It's remarkable to me how many people over the last 200 years have made these words of Christ so crystal clear and true. How many have said either they are the Christ or they have seen the Christ? 1879, Charles Taze Russell begins to teach that Christ returned invisibly in 1874. And he produced a magazine called Zion's Watchtower and the Herald of Christ's Presence. And through that publication, he broadcasted a message that Christ has already returned. He's already present. He said he returned in 1874 and he said that in 1914 he would judge the nations and it would be the end of all things. He would establish paradise on earth and he would rule the world. Mark your calendars, October 1914. Well, when that prediction failed, he changed it to 1915. And when that prediction failed, he changed it to 1918. Well, Charles Taze Russell died before he got to see that one flop also. But apparently, 
this organization didn't learn from that because their next president, Joseph Rutherford, predicted 1925 would be the end of all things. And then when that failed, sometime around 1950, this group called the Jehovah's Witnesses decided, you know what, Russell was right about 1914. So they scratched the 1874 date, they said made 1914 their date, and their magazine is all about how the end is coming at any time, and you must be ready. Their magazine teaches that in 1914, Jesus determined that the Watchtower Society was the only organization on earth that was preaching the truth of the Bible, and he declared them his messengers, and so they will come to you on an inconvenient time on a Saturday morning, giving you their false gospel. Eight million of them who followed these false prophets and their false gospel to their judgment. Because they believed these men and they did not believe what Jesus said. They will lead many astray. Do not go after them. Or how about in upstate New York in 1820, a 14-year-old boy named Joseph Smith claims that he was confused about which church he should join. And so he went into the woods to pray and God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him that all of the churches and their creeds were an abomination and that he should join none of them. And based on this revelation, Smith was given the instructions that he was to restore the true church and the true gospel. And Smith started what has become known as Mormonism, and there are roughly 17 million people today who have a false gospel and a false Christ because they believe what their prophet said and they didn't believe what Jesus said. Jesus said, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness. He was out there in the forest. I was praying and he appeared to me. He says, do not go after them. They're liars. Or in Korea around 1920, a 15-year-old Sun Myung Moon claims that Jesus appeared to him and called him to accomplish his mission of restoring the world, which Jesus had attempted to do but failed. He claimed that Christ came to earth to reverse the curse of Adam by marrying and starting a new sinless family called the true family, which would then repopulate the earth by producing sinless offspring and overcoming the sinful sons of Adam. That's how God's plan was to save the world. But Jesus never married, and He was shamefully executed, and His plan was interrupted. And so here He comes to this young man in Korea some 1,900 years later, and chooses him to do what he himself could not do. And so Sun Myung Moon, who claimed he was sinless, becomes the fulfillment of the second coming of Christ, referring to himself as one greater than Jesus and the Lord of the second advent. And over the last 50 plus years, millions in the Unification Church, also known as the Moonies, have followed this false prophet and his blasphemy all the way to their judgment 
because they believed Him and they didn't believe Jesus. But Jesus said, many will come in My name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Or how about radio Bible teacher Harold Camping who through calculations based on numerology and the Bible made various predictions for the end of the world and the return of Christ in the 1990s, none of which came to pass. So he decided, he crunched some more numbers and concluded that May 21st, 2011 would be the end. And he convinced his millions of listeners of the same. And he broadcast on his radio program that the church age had ended. In fact, I remember his gospel tracks. I met people in several places who had his tracks who were zealously passing out his pamphlets. And it's, it's, it sounds so orthodox until you get to the end and he has some frequently asked questions. Should I join a church? No. And he said it was a sin to join the church. Well, how would you be spiritually fed? Oh, got to tune into his broadcast. He would become your leader now. And sadly, millions of his followers spent their fortunes, they spent their inheritances to, to, to support this ministry and to produce billboards all over the world. Many of you, I'm sure, remember this. This was only 11 years ago. And when May 21st did not transpire, Camping did what all false prophets do. He said, his date was wrong and it was going to be October. And when it didn't happen in October, he said, you know what, I was actually right because it was a spiritual event that happened. Jesus returned spiritually. The church was raptured spiritually. And sadly, many of those who followed him became disillusioned with Christianity altogether. But it's because they were believing a man instead of believing Jesus. Because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour of his return. So if some delusional old man, deluded old man on the radio is telling you he's, he knows the date, don't believe him. It's not going to be that date. Guaranteed. Now, those are just a few examples, and I could have from hundreds. There are hundreds all the way going back to the early church to the present time either claiming to be the second coming of Christ or claiming that Christ has already returned. And Jesus makes it clear. They are liars. And not only will His return not be a secret, but it will be something that everyone will see. Verse 24 for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. <clears throat> so rather than some secret appearance of Jesus to some individual, someone in the woods, someone in their home, it's going to be immediately known to all. It will be as if the entire sky was lit up. You're not going to have to read a headline on CNN about it. 
You're not going to go to work the next day and people are talking about it around the water cooler and you hadn't heard. Oh, you didn't hear about that? It will be a global phenomenon that everyone will become aware of and no one will be expecting. I was trying to think of what would get your attention. You know how we have those really bad fires in Southern California and it just colors everything orange? And you go outside and it's orange and like the light coming in through your window is orange. It just has such an eerie pinkish-orange hue to it and it's just evident and everyone's aware something's not right here. What's going on? Now, I don't know if it's going to have anything to do with the sky, but it's going to be so obvious that everyone's going to know. It's going to be like lightning that lights everything up. It's going to be spectacular and it's going to be sudden. And he's going to go on for the rest of the chapter to describe what this event is going to be like. This is what we're going to talk about next week. It's going to be like the days of Noah. Sorry, two weeks from now. It's going to be like the days of Lot. It's going to be a terrible day of judgment, just like in those days where people were overcome suddenly. People are going to be going about their business, going to run over to Costco, Got to stop by my friend's house. Going to pick up a Starbucks. Going to go to work. Going to go eat and drink over there. Going to go have some fun over there. And yet, just as it was in those days, in the flood and in Sodom that was rained down with fire and brimstone, they're going to be caught unexpectedly. It's not going to be a secret. Not a soul will have missed this event. Because it is a day that their soul will be required of them. This is how he describes the end of the age to his disciples. This is how it will be at his return. But something must happen before that, Jesus tells them. But first, he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, we're going to get into some heavy stuff in the rest of this chapter. Judgment, wrath, fearful things. And yet, we have to recognize that the return of Christ is not an event where Jesus is going to return to gather the good people and to judge the bad people. But the Gospel itself is that all are bad people and none are good people. And Jesus came to suffer and be rejected so that He might make a bad people a redeemed people. And the reason that the promises of the Old Testament come in two phases, rather than Christ just coming once to overthrow the nations, which is what the Jews anticipated, He has first come to bring salvation to the nations. And He does that by becoming a substitute for sinners. He was rejected. He was slandered. He was tortured. He was executed. The perfect man, the second Adam, the God-man, 
And He did this so that He could become your substitute. He did this so He could satisfy God's righteous requirements on your behalf for your benefit. And the good news of the kingdom is that God and man can be reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ. But there are many who don't want to be reconciled to God. There are many who live in this world and will not even thank God for anything. And so the day is coming which will be a day of darkness and misery and wrath and regret. And yet, strangely, at the same time, it will be a day of rejoicing where every longing will be fulfilled for those who wait for Him. So it's a very strange, dark, and yet wonderful, momentous event where this bridegroom returns for his bride, and yet it is a day of judgment also. But for us, it's a day of joy because look what it says in Hebrews 9.28. And with this, we're done. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, meaning your sin, His people's sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So it will be a day of great blessing. And it will be a day of great anguish. And what that day will be like all depends on your relationship to Christ. Which group will you belong to? Will it be a day of rejoicing or will it be a day of horror? Have you submitted to this King? I think I asked you that last week. Have you submitted to this king? Are you serving this king? Do you belong to his kingdom? Or do you continue to resist him? Do you continue to make excuses? Do you say you need to think about it some more? Or do you act as if you belong to him, but really it's all make-believe and you know it and God knows it? A day is coming and perhaps very soon where this will become a reality and the not yet will become the already. The, the time of promise will have passed. The time of fulfillment will have come. And for many, it will be too late. And so I ask you, what will it be like on that day for you? Our Heavenly Father, You are rich in mercy. You are abounding in loving kindness. You have made a way for us to be reconciled that is perfect, that cannot be improved upon. And yet, Lord, we know that still some resist You. We know, Lord, that some still keep you at arm's length, even in the church. And so if there are any in the hearing of my voice, whether in this room or online, I pray, Father, that you 
would soften their hearts, that you would humble them, that you would make the return of Christ to them the greatest day they will have ever experienced because their treasure, their hope, their love, their greatest affection is coming for them. And I pray that that be the case, Lord, with them and not be a day of wrath, where it be the day of the greatest dread of their life, the greatest horror they could imagine. Please save, Lord, and have mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.